Do you trust God? You're like, yes, John, next question. Let's spend a moment. Let's spend a moment on this. Do you trust God? A question that begs another question. Can God be trusted? Can he be trusted? These are relevant questions wherever we are on the spectrum of faith or life, whether you're a new believer, newer believer, believer for a long time, grew up in church, heard this stuff a million times. Can he be trusted? And are you trusting him? These are relevant questions for you if you're seven, eight, or 80-something. These are the kind of questions that are being addressed in Genesis chapter 15. I'd invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week. We did Genesis 15, 1 through 6 last week. Genesis 15 really is causing us to answer these two questions, to at least think about these two questions. Do I trust God and can God be trusted? Verses 1 through 6, we learn that Abram does indeed trust God. Verses 7 through 21, we will see that God can indeed be trusted. Quick recap from last week, verses 1 through 6, we saw Abram wrestling with the delay in God fulfilling his promises to him. God responds to his concern by reaffirming his promises in verses 4 through 5. Interestingly, God doesn't come to Abram and, excuse me, begin working on Abram's inner psychological state He doesn't come to Abram and begin working on his circumstances. The very thing that he does is the thing that he still does, the things that you need to remember all the time, even this morning. The thing that God does when when he comes to someone struggling in faith is that he comes with promises, big and bold promises. He doesn't come fixing stuff. He comes with promises. This is verses 4 and 5. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram, excuse me, God doesn't come to Abram cleaning up his life. He comes announcing promises. Then, of course, verse 6 tells us what Abram does in response to these promises. Verse 6, He believed the Lord and He, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Abram trusted God and God counted him as righteous. What does it mean to trust God? We didn't spend a lot of time on this last week, so I'm going to give you a few minutes of extra material from last week. Amen? What does it mean to trust God? I just think we need to think about this because we talk about this all the time. Trust in the Lord. Trust in God. Believe. Have faith. What does that even mean? What does it mean to trust in the Lord? Well, the nature of saving faith has often, and I think rightly, been described as having three components. You might jot these words down. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. True saving faith starts with knowledge. You have to know something. There has to be some information that's coming to you. Assent is the next step. You have to ascend to it. You have to agree that this knowledge is indeed true. You're like, yes, I believe that. That's right. But then thirdly, and this is where I think a lot of us, especially growing up in the Bible Belt, struggle. 
You have to trust it, embrace it, grab onto it as if your life depended upon it. Not just knowing it in your head and agreeing to it, but letting it come into your heart and change everything about you. It's the kind, this is the kind of faith that, that knows that God is with us and for us. This is the kind of faith that will be credited to us as righteousness. This is the kind of faith that saves because it has knowledge, assent, and trust. Now this faith is valuable. It's what links us to God's righteousness. But we must be reminded that faith is only valuable because of its object. Many talk today about, you know, just believing in some abstract, generic sense. There's kind of this mentality of having faith in faith. Just believe. But faith is only valuable because of its object. Because it joins us to God. Or let me say it this way. A, a faith, the only faith that is valuable is a faith that joins us to God. A faith that has God as its object. A faith that links us to His promises. This is the kind of faith that is then counted or credited reckoned or assigned to us as righteousness. This is the kind of faith that Abram had. Abram is declared righteous because he had this kind of faith. He had a faith in God and His promises. He was declared righteous before he was circumcised. He was declared righteous before he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac, he was declared righteous because of his faith and his faith alone. Not because of what he did. Those works were works of his faith but they weren't his righteousness. His faith is what was credited to him as righteousness. Faith is the means, not the ground, by which Abram acquires righteousness. Think of it this way. Faith is not the drink. Faith is the straw by which the water of God's righteousness comes into our mouths and satiates our thirst. Faith is not the drink. Faith is the straw. When we, like Abram, drink upon God's promises, trusting them, embracing them, assuming that unless we embrace them, we will die, we will perish, putting all of our hope in them. And unless we do that, we will not be righteous. But when we do it, like Abram, God looks at us and He says, that's enough. That's the kind of faith I'm looking for. That's the kind of heart I'm looking for. That's the kind of life I'm looking for. When we do that, God looks at us and He says, Look, you're not trusting what you've done, what you've accomplished. You're trusting in only what you can receive. Therefore, you are righteous. You are mine. The reason I give this little excursus on faith before we begin into our text is because I know that many of us are struggling today to believe the promises of God. Many of us today are struggling to believe the promises of God. We look at our life and we think, man, this isn't really what I thought it would be like. This isn't really where I'd like to be. We may look at our spouse and wonder if we marry the right person. We may look at our children and worry about how they'll make it in this darkening world. We may look at our singleness and wonder if God has forgotten about us. We may look at our finances and wonder how we'll pay for everything. We look at nagging health issues and we wonder why God doesn't take it away. We wonder 
how things are going to turn out. We wonder if God knows what He's doing. We wonder if God can be trusted. We struggle with that third aspect of faith. The knowledge is there. I dare say that everyone in this room has the knowledge and the assent. But that third aspect of embrace, of trust, of putting all of your confidence into someone else is where we struggle. Can He be trusted? Can God be trusted with your life? Can God be trusted with your life? This is what is going to be addressed here in the last part of Genesis 15. The second part, verses 7 through 21, are going to show us that yes, God can indeed be trusted. Verses 1 through 6 show us that Abram trusted God. And now we're going to see that he can be trusted. The reason we're going to learn in this section, the reason God can be trusted is because he's a covenant-making God. He's a covenant-making God. You may be thinking, John, I don't know what a covenant is. I'm glad you asked. Here is what a covenant is. A covenant in the Bible is a relationship between two parties that involves permanent and serious commitments of faithful, loyal love, obedience, and trust. It's where two people, kind of like in a marriage, join themselves together and say, this is an, a binding agreement that we will not break. And, and it comes with blessings for obedience and consequences for disobedience. This is the kind of relationship that Coleman and Brittany are beginning on Thursday evening. This is the kind of relationship that our church members enter into when you join our church, you sign our church covenant, agreeing to live and be a certain way. A covenant isn't a business contract. It's a relationship. A, a covenant describes the nature of God's relationship with His people. Now, why does God do this? Why does God enter into a covenant with Abraham? You might be thinking, if you're, if you're following along in our study of Genesis, God's already made these promises and He's reaffirmed them multiple times. Why does He have to solidify them or enshrine them with a covenant? Shouldn't Abram just believe the promises? Why can't he just take God at His word? Why does God have to go to this next step and enter into a covenant relationship with Abram? Well, two reasons quickly. First, he needs to do this. He does this in order to calm Abram's fears about having children and having a land. The chapter begins in 15.1 with the Lord telling Abram, Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. So God enters into this formal relationship with his righteous servant Abram as a means to comfort him, to solidify his faith, to strengthen his faith. It's like when a man finally puts a ring on it and gets engaged to his girlfriend, allaying her, fear, her fears about whether he's really committed. This is God's way of saying, I'm in it to the end. Now secondly, the other reason why God enters into this covenant, I would argue, is because He knows that Abram won't live to see the promises fulfilled. We're going to learn down in chapter 15, 13 through 16 that Abram's not going to live to see his descendants fill the land. So God enters into this covenant. He makes this covenant with Abram to guarantee, to make a guarantee to Abram that he'll fulfill his promises even if Abram doesn't live to see it. 
Namely, he's making this covenant as a marriage, if you will, not just with Abram, but also with all of Abram's descendants. Now, chapter 15, as I said, is two parts, one through six, about Abram's faith, seven through 21, about whether God can be trusted. This is where the covenant comes into play down in verse 18. Let's read this section, 7 through 21, then we'll go through and talk about it bit by bit. So chapter 15, starting in verse 7. And he, the Lord, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As to yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's begin back in verse 7, work our way through this covenant-making ceremony. Verse 7 lets us know that God is about to establish a formal covenant with Abram. In keeping with other ancient Near Eastern treaties or covenants, verse 7 gives us the historical prologue. It sets the historical context for the covenant. It says what the Lord did for Abram. I brought you out from Ur. It establishes the parties of the covenant, the Lord and Abram. We hear echoes of the Mosaic covenant here. It comes later in Exodus 20 where the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then after that, in Exodus 20, there's a, there's a rehearsing of the stipulations and the promises of the covenant. So this is the historical introduction to this covenant. But then verse 8, Abram's first response is, Oh Lord God, how am I supposed to know that you're going to do this? This is like he's saying again, I believe, but help my unbelief. Abram continues to struggle with the delay between the making of the promises and the fulfillment of the promises. So in light of his doubt and his struggles, God comes to him in verses 9 through 10 and gives him this strange ceremony. 
Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abram brings them to God, cuts them in half, lays them each half, each half over against the other, but he doesn't cut the birds in half. What is going on here? <laughs> He's cutting animals in half. He's laying them opposite of each other. So there are pieces of dead animals along this walkway. There's a path that goes through the center of them. And the Lord doesn't explain to Abram what's going on. He doesn't explain any of the meaning or the why for this ceremony. Because Abram would have understood exactly what's about to happen. He understands that this is a, a covenant-making ceremony. This is about to be the ratification of a covenant relationship that God is entering into with Himself. The meaning for Him would have been commonly understood, though it seems strange and mysterious and, let's be honest, weird to us. If someone comes to you and is like, hey, I want to cut up some animals and I want us to walk through them, you know, run, okay? Run. That's probably witchcraft. But not here. Not here. This is a common way that treaties or covenants were made in the ancient Near East. Covenants were literally, when you formed a covenant, it was literally said that you would cut a covenant. You would cut a covenant like we would cut a deal. And that language is related to this practice. You would cut animals, lay them opposite each other, and the, the parties of the covenant would walk through them. We're going to talk about its meaning in a few moments. First, let's consider a few things that are happening here for our application Notice here that God gives a verbal, a verbal declaration and then there's a visual demonstration. Verbal declaration and then a visual demonstration. This is the beginning of what we would call word and sacrament. Of oath and ritual, of declaration and demonstration, declaring the word of God, demonstrating the word of God. God verbally makes promises to Abram. And then he ratifies and shows these promises to him with a covenant sign. And we do the same thing in church every Sunday. We have a verbal declaration, namely the preaching of the Word of God. And I shouldn't say every Sunday because we don't do the ordinances every single Sunday. Some might wonder why. See Jared afterwards for why. But we have a regular visual demonstration of the Word of God through the ordinances or through baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Word of God is declared through the preaching of the Gospel. The Word of God is demonstrated through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now the Reformers, of course, argued that the true church was where the Word was right, rightly preached and the sacraments rightly observed. Now as Baptists, we of course believe that their understanding of baptism was incorrect. They got a lot of things right. They got baptism wrong and religious liberty. That's another, that's another sermon. But we agree with them that the sacraments, or to you know, allay your Baptistic concerns, ordinances, the ordinances are visual demonstrations of God's Word to us in the Gospel and should be rightly practiced. So as Baptists, we believe that if you've placed faith in Christ, you've repented of your sins and joined Christ and His people, you should be baptized. If you're a Christian, you haven't been baptized as a Christian by immersion, by being dunked in the water and brought up from the water, you need to be. You need to be. See, Jared or I, we'd love to talk to you more about that after the service. Baptism doesn't save us. 
We don't need to be baptized to go to heaven. But baptism does demonstrate and declare that we're united to Christ and united to His church. Baptism is our visible entrance into the church. This is why baptism should result in church membership. We shouldn't be baptized and then left kind of to float through life spiritually on our own. We're baptized into the church. This is a mistake I made as a youth pastor numerous times. Would baptize students who profess faith and never encourage them to join the church. And now I'm not sure where they are. I know many of them are following the Lord. I know many of them are not. Parents, as you evangelize your children, as you talk to them about following Christ and about being baptized, think about the timing of their baptism in terms of when they would be able to be a faithful church member. And what does that mean? It simply means when would they be old enough to keep the terms of a church covenant? What this probably means for most Baptist churches is that we shouldn't baptize children nearly as often as we do. Because baptism should result in church membership, children should only be baptized if they're old enough to understand and live out the church covenant. This is how we can encourage them to demonstrate the Word of God that they have believed. Now then we have the Lord's Supper, the other sacrament or ordinance, if you will. The Lord's, the Lord's Supper is our covenant meal. It's our visible demonstration that we're still connected to Christ and His church. It's the renewal and celebration of our faith in the gospel. The Lord's Supper, like baptism, doesn't save us, but it does remind us that we are saved. This is why those who choose to live in unrepentant sin are removed from church membership, meaning they're removed from taking the Lord's Supper. If the Supper is for those who are continuing on with Jesus, then that means that those who are living lives marked by not continuing on with Jesus should not be allowed to the Lord's table. You're like, well, John, that, that just sounds really judgmental. I would argue this is super loving. As a church and as elders, we don't want to give anyone the impression that they're good with Christ if they're not living a life that reflects Christ. Not perfection, but a faithful plodding after the Lord with His people day after day. When we did the Lord's Supper like we did last Sunday, this is why I say something to the effect of the Lord's Supper is for repenting sinners, for those who have union with Christ and union with His church. This means that the Supper is for those who've trusted in Christ, been baptized, and who belong to a local church. I'll say, if you're not yet a baptized follower of Jesus who's a member of a local church, we're glad you're here, but we'd encourage you to refrain from taking the Supper. I say if you're a visitor and you've been baptized as a believer and you're a member in good standing at another gospel preaching church, you're welcome to observe the supper with us. Why do I say that? I know that strikes many as weird and unnecessary. Well, first of all, that's what Baptists used to say every time they did the Lord's Supper. We've just forgotten that in the last couple of generations. This is the elder's way of guarding the table, of protecting the sacrament from being observed 
by people who aren't believing the word that's been declared. From protecting people from eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. From protecting the purity of the church. Promoting the purity and the holiness of the church. So if you haven't been baptized and joined a local church that preaches the gospel, then we're so thankful that you join with us in worship. But we, when we do the supper, we ask that you not take the supper with us because you haven't yet been baptized or joined a gospel-preaching church. So here we see the beginning of word and sacrament. The word of God is declared to Abram and then demonstrated through a covenant-making ceremony. That brings us down to verse 11. Verse 11 is strange. What's up with these birds of prey? They come down on the carcasses. Abram drives them away. Is this just some useless detail? Well, I don't really know exactly what's going on here, to be honest with you. Some would say that, you know, this is a demonic attack. Some would say that these represent foreign nations trying to intrude on the promised land. Some would say that this is Abram merely, you know, working to not let distractions get in his way. I would argue it's likely, in context, connected to what's coming next in verses 12 through 16. That these birds symbolize the trouble that Abram's offspring will face for 400 years in bondage in a foreign land, what we're about to read about. These, these birds are coming symbolically to try to spoil the promise of God. But Abram, for the meantime, in the meantime, shoes them away. And that brings us to verse 12 where a deep sleep comes on Abram. A dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Do you remember the last time we saw a deep sleep fall upon someone in Genesis? It was before another covenant was initiated. Anyone remember? Adam. God put Adam in a deep sleep, chapter 2, verse 21, when he created Eve. So just as Adam was about to enter into a covenant relationship with Eve, God puts him to sleep. So here Abram is put to sleep. He enters into a deep sleep just before he enters into a covenant with God. This tells us that something weighty, and profound, somber is about to happen. This is a big deal. If God puts you to sleep, <laughs> pay attention to what happens next. It's important. Then in, in, in his sleep and his slumber, there's a message that God delivers to Abram, verses 13 through 15. Look at it again. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They shall be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. <laughs> Abram's like, whew, that's good. Verse 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now remember back in verse 8, Abram says, Lord, how am I supposed to know that this is going to happen? How am I going to know that you're going to give us the land? And then look at the language in verse 13. Lord says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring are going to live in another land. <laughs> Do you see this? How am I going to know that we're going to have this land? And the first thing the Lord does is like, hey, uh, 
know for certain that you're going to live in another land. They're going to live in another land before they inherit this land. In other words, there's bad news before there's good news. God is saying that this great nation that He's going to make of Abram will be a nation of slaves for 400 years. That's not a short amount of time. Try to visualize this. When the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in um, Massachusetts, right? Someone help me out here. Uh, they landed on the Mayflower uh, on Pilgrim Rock. That was 1620, I believe. So that's 400 years ago. That seems like a whole other world, doesn't it? 400 years, God says, Abram's descendants are going to be slaves in another land. That is not a short amount of time. Can you imagine what Abram's feeling? But the Lord comes again and reassures him that he won't abandon Abram's offspring in that foreign land. End of verse 14. Afterward they shall come out, and they'll come out with great possessions. He's saying that he will bring his people home, and he's going to bring his people home well supplied. Verse 16 gives us some information we need to make sense of one of the harder parts of Scripture. Verse 16, notice it again, it says, They'll come back in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Um, the Amorites, by the way, stand kind of as representatives for all the Canaanite people who lived in the land of Canaan. Verses 19 through 21 list 10 different peoples who lived in the land, 10 being a number of fullness. So when it says Amorites, we can conclude that it's all the people in the land of Canaan that are in view. One of the most difficult ethical questions in the Bible, one that skeptics love to raise in order to discredit the Bible, is about what's called the Canaanite genocide. You may remember in Joshua, God tells the Israelites to wipe out the peoples living in the land of Canaan. Why would God want all these people wiped out? This is the question raised by so many skeptics and Christians. How could a good God not just want, but actually command the slaughter of quote-unquote innocent thousands of people? Well, verse 16 here gives us one of the main reasons. It says plainly, <clears throat> you'll come back, fourth generation, when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. Right now it's not complete. You'll come back when it's complete. What do we learn from this statement? Well, we learn that God judges nations, even nations that aren't His chosen nation, like the Israelites. He judges Israel too, as all the prophets make clear. But He judges all nations. God looks upon all nations, and He counts their sins, and He judges them accordingly. So, brothers and sisters, as we thank God for our country this weekend, and we eat barbecue and put our bug spray on and sweat to death tomorrow, amen, maybe we should have our celebrations inside, uh, as we celebrate the good gifts that we have here in the United States of America, it might do us well to wonder and to think where the United States of America stands in the balance of God's righteous scales. God is the respecter of no nation. He judges all nations. America is not Israel. We are not God's chosen people. That's a farce. 
that TV preachers yell about. It's not in the Bible. The church, the people believing the promises of God, are God's new nation. God's new Israel. So to think that because we're American, we're somehow exempt from the judgment of God is bogus. May God give us hearts of repentance. Judgments, Peter said, judgment starts in the household of God. May we learn to hate our sin before we start yelling about everyone else's sin. Before we start yelling about the libs, trying to own the libs, whatever. May we be broken over our own sin, brothers and sisters. May we pray for the repentance of our nation, spiritual awakening in our nation. Do you believe that spiritual awakening can happen in America again? Sure. <laughs> You're like, well, that was a long time ago, you know. And that was with Jonathan Edwards preaching. Do you know what happened in the Great Awakening? Men of God preached the Word of God, and the Spirit of God decided to bless it. Hallelujah. There was no magic formula. It was a God ordained and blessed moment using the ordinary means of grace, the kind of stuff we do around here every single week. May God do it again. Would you pray that God do it again? Man, I'm just driving into church this morning. I'm driving through the neighborhood. and There are people perishing, brothers and sisters, all over this community. People that we may even be gathering with, our friends and families tomorrow, are perishing with no trust in the Lord Christ. And we're consumed with whatever the news people are telling us to be consumed with when people are dying and going to hell all around us. And they need Christ. They need Christ. No matter what happens with our country, Christ wins. And we have Him. And we can give Him and recommend Him to others. May we be faithful to do so. So God's going to wait 400 years before He brings judgment on the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites, etc. He's going to wait 400 years. Don't let anyone say that God is impatient or that He's slow to show mercy. God is not some capricious tyrant. He waits four centuries before He sent judgment on the pagan nations of Canaan. Why? Because that's how long it took before they deserved what they got. According to this text, Peter says, God is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not impatient, but patient. But His patience has an end. It does run out. And judgment will and does come for those who don't trust Him. Now, we move to the end. Verse 17 and 18, and the making of this covenant. Verse 17, Abram sees, it says, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, these pieces of the dead animals he'd separated just earlier. What is going on here? Well, think of it, smoke and fire, a smoking fire pot and a blazing or flaming torch. Smoke and fire. What does smoke and fire represent all over the Old Testament? Audience participation? The presence of God. I think someone said that. The presence of God. So Exodus 13, God leads Israel with a cloud of smoke by day, pillar of fire by night. Exodus 19, God descends on Mount Sinai in 
the most brilliant pyrotechnic display ever? Better than Kaboom Town that we're going to watch in Addison later tonight, Lord willing? The whole mountain is shaking with fire and smoke. Why? Because God Himself has descended on the mountain. These things, smoke and fire, symbolize God's unapproachable holiness. When there's smoke and fire, you don't walk to it or into it. You walk away from it. Smoke and fire show us just how unapproachable God is in His holiness. This is what Abram sees making its, making its way through these dead animals. This is called a theophany. Theophany, a visible manifestation of the presence of Almighty God. Abram sees the presence of God move through the pieces of these dead animals. Now, like I said earlier, this kind of ceremony was a common way at that time of solidifying an oath or a covenant between two parties. There are examples of these kind of ceremonies and literature outside the Bible, but even inside the Bible, in Jeremiah 34, 18, we learn more about what, type, what these types of ceremonies entailed. Jeremiah 34, 18 says, The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its part. Now, this was written 14 or 1500 years before Jeremiah, but what it tells, what Jeremiah tells us is that these kind of covenant ceremonies were basically the same. Those who kept the covenant, excuse me, those who didn't keep the covenant, will become like the animals that are cut in two that they've walked through. May the men who transgress the covenant be made like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. So when you made a covenant like this, when you cut a covenant, when you walked through the animals, you were saying one to another, you were saying, may I be torn in two if I don't keep this covenant. May I be severed limb from limb if I'm not true to my word. This is a self-maledictory oath. It's bringing a curse down upon yourself if you don't keep the covenant. But who's walking through the animals? Notice again, who walks through the animals? In verse 17. Is it God? Is it Abram? Is it God and Abram? When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. So what passed between the pieces or who passed between the pieces? God and God alone. Not Abram. Not Abram and God. God and God alone. Normally, both parties of the covenant would walk together through the animals because both parties are saying the same thing to one another. Both parties would be required to sign on the dotted line, so to speak, but not here. This is a unilateral covenant. A covenant of grace. Yes, Abraham must believe the promises, but God's the one making all the promises. God's the one ensuring that the promises will be kept. There's only one person walking the aisle between the severed animals. Abram wasn't asked to join the ceremony. God walked the aisle alone. Can you imagine, Coleman and Brittany, 
if only one of you walked down Thursday evening and only one of you took vows with me while the other sat on the front row? And, and only one of you said, I'll make sure this thing happens. I'll make sure this marriage works. I'll make sure this thing gets to the end. And the other party just sat, sat along on the side. Could you imagine? Wouldn't that be the weirdest, strangest, worst wedding ever? Here God walks the aisle alone. God alone ratified this covenant. God is taking full responsibility for the fulfillment of His promises. God alone will ensure that His promises are realized. God is calling down a curse of death on Himself if He fails to keep these promises. God is showing Abram, Abram, you can trust me. Here's how you can know that you can trust me because I'm willing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone without you. The Lord is saying to Abram, I'm going to make this covenant happen, man, not you. If I break my word, I'll be like these butchered animals. I'll do what I promised or I'll die. And guess what? God can't die. Therefore, will the promises be kept? Yes. Absolutely. God is saying to Abram, in no uncertain terms that his covenant with him is as sure as his existence. The Lord is saying that he'll do for his people what he promised to do. Then he proves it through a ceremony involving blood. I love how Ray Vanderlaan describes this scene. Listen to this. Ray Vanderlaan says, Imagine the creator of the universe, the holy and righteous God, was willing to leave heaven and come down to a nomad's tent in the dusty, hot desert of the Negev to express his love for his people. He says, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, along with a dove, a dove and a young pigeon. Then, when those animals had been sacrificed and laid out on both sides of their shed blood, God made a covenant. To do that, he walked barefoot in the form of a blazing torch through the path of blood between the animals. Think of it, he says. Think of it. Almighty God walking barefoot through a pool of blood. The thought of a human being that is, to say the least, unpleasant. Yet God in all His power and majesty expressed His love for us. That personally. Picturing God passing through that gory path between the carcasses of animals. Imagining the blood splashing as He walked helps us recognize the faithfulness of God's commitment. He was willing to express in terms His chosen people could understand that He would never fail to do what He promised. Do you remember how the chapter began? The chapter began with Abram wondering if he could trust the promises of God. Here in this ceremony, the Lord is saying to Abram, You can trust me. You can trust me. If you've had children or been around children, worked with children, you've had the experience of walking through a crowded store, or a crowded church, or a crowded room, or maybe across a busy street, and your child or your friend or whatever kind of looks at you and hesitates. They're scared. They don't want to go through the room. They don't want to go across the street. What do you almost without thinking do in that moment? You put your hand down. You just simply put your hand down. 
You put your hand down. You're saying when you do that, hey, you can trust me. I can get you through this. I can get you to the other side. I know it's fearful for you, but I can see through this. I can see what's on the other side and I can get us there. And all the child has to do is reach up, grab the hand, trust, walk, and arrive on the other side. This is the kind of life we're called to as followers of Jesus Christ. The life of faith that we're called to is more than agreeing to a statement of faith. As, as, as wonderful as that is, one of my fears in a church like ours is that we can recite all the right doctrines and assent to them, but we struggle to hold the hand of God through our lives. We're intellectually on point but experientially shriveling away in fear and anxiety and sin and despair because we're struggling to hold the hand of God. The life of faith we're called to is grabbing hold the hand of God, not just with knowledge or assent, but with embrace and trust that our Father is good, that He knows where we're going, that He knows what's best for us, and He can get us to the other side. God can be trusted brothers and sisters, because He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. This is wonderful news, especially in light of the fact that we are covenant-breaking people. We continually prove to be covenant-breakers. So if, if the parties who walk through the, the animals are making the promises, and the one who breaks the covenant is the one who should be torn apart, then who should be torn apart? God or us? Us. <laughs> Abram. All of his progeny. All of us in this room. But who is it that was actually torn to, torn to pieces? Well, it wasn't Abram. It's not us. It was indeed God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Listen how Ray Vanderlaan, he continues describing this scene he says, because we look at God's dealings with Abraham as some remote piece of history in a far-off land, we often fail to realize that we too are part of the long line of people with whom God made a covenant on that rocky plain near Hebron. And like those who came before us, we have broken that covenant. When he walked in the dust of the desert and through the blood of the animals Abraham had slaughtered, God was making a promise to all the descendants of Abraham. To everyone in the household of faith, when God splashed through the blood, he did it for us. When God made covenant with His people, He did something no human being would have even considered doing. In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. When God made covenant with Abraham, however, He promised to keep both sides of the agreement. God said, if this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or for yours, I will pay the price. If you or your descendants fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. In that moment, Ray Vanderlaan says, in that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on His Son, Jesus. On the cross, brothers and sisters, God splashed through the blood for covenant breakers like us. Do you feel the weight of your sin? You're like, John, I don't know, I had a pretty good week. You know, I'm doing okay. And some of you are like, no, John, I do feel it. I do feel it. Be reminded, brothers and sisters, that on the cross, God splashed through the blood for covenant breakers like us. 
In Jesus, God bled for people like us. In Jesus, God walked the path of blood for people who find it easier to hate their enemies rather than love them. People who gossip and slander. People who grumble and complain. People who harbor bitterness instead of offering forgiveness. People who prefer to take rather than give. People who walk in pride rather than humility. People like us who constantly covet things that our neighbors have. People like us who lust after women or lust after men. People who kill rather in their hearts or with their hands. People who lie and cheat and deceive. People who find their identity in being chiefly a conservative rather than being a Christian. People who always work incessantly and never pause to rest and enjoy God. People who work hard, tirelessly promoting their own name rather than God's good name. In Jesus, God splashed through the blood for these kinds of sins and a thousand more. Sins that He didn't commit. In Jesus, God paid the price in blood that we owe. He offers us righteousness through faith because we don't have any. The good news and the promise is that everyone who admits that truth and embraces Christ as Lord and Savior will be forgiven of their sin, declared righteous, and brought home to heaven one day. They will be washed clean by the fountain of blood that flows from Jesus' veins. Maybe there are some here this morning who haven't yet put their faith in Christ. I'd love to talk to you after the service. Maybe the friend you came with, we'd love to chat with you about what this means, what it means to follow Jesus and trust in the gospel. Grab your friend or grab me afterwards. We'd love to talk with you. In this text, God is saying to Abram that he can be trusted because he's a God who's willing to walk through the path of blood. Jesus is a God who can be trusted because He's a God who seals His promises with blood. Jesus is a God who can be trusted because He's a God willing to bleed for His people. So again, we'll end where we started. Friends, do you trust this God? Do you trust this Christ? And then relatedly, can He be trusted? Can this God, can this Christ be trusted? The cross of Jesus Christ is screaming out an answer. The cross is answering and saying to you right now, yes, He can be trusted. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would please take your word, cause it to find good soil amongst those who are here, those who may listen later. Help it to find good soil that isn't snatched away by the evil one, choked out by the cares of this world, or scorched <clears throat> scorched through busyness or unbelief. Lord, I pray that the good seed of your word would find good soil. I pray, Father, that you would take your word, help us to love it, meditate on it, share it with others, obey it, live it out. Father, help us to be the people you've called us to be, the people you died for us to be. Lord, help us to never forget the beauty of the cross. And I pray, Lord, that every person in this room who hasn't yet put their faith in Christ would come to Christ, even now, even this morning, confessing their sins and admitting that their only hope is Jesus Christ.
we pray, Father, in His precious name. Amen.